must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Wyrock, and today we are diving into a discussion exploring why healthcare professionals are not members of their respective professional associations. So I've already started this series, and this is the second in the series of uh, interviews that we're doing. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Glennon Brown. Dr. Brown is an anesthesiologist in Palm Beach County, Florida, and he's been practicing for 18 years. He's received his MD from Upstate Medical in New York and completed his residency in anesthesia at the University of Florida in 2000. Throughout his career, Dr. Brown has worked at several hospitals in the Palm Beach County area and has more recently shifted his practice to an outpatient setting. He routinely collaborates with plastic surgeons, dentists, ophthalmologists, and gastrointestinal physicians to provide medical care for his community. And I'm so excited to have him on this podcast because today we're going to talk about AMA membership and kind of what physicians are thinking about the American Medical Association. So thank you, Dr. Brown, for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Well, yes, and thank you very much for having me, Stephanie. I greatly appreciate it. I think I would be a bit remiss if I didn't first mention that I also have on my bio that I'm an amateur beach volleyball player. So I'm holding on to the dream of someday maybe turning pro, and I think that's completely realistic at age 50, but uh, it's a dream we all you know, have to have. We all have to have our hopes and dreams. We can't wait to see you in the Olympics. <laughs> I'm hoping. So... Anyway, uh, I grew up in uh, Miami, and I graduated from the University of Florida in 1991. I attended Upstate Medical, and I finished my anesthesia residency, as you've already mentioned, in the year 2000. So I've been in practice in anesthesia in South Florida for 18-plus years. I've worked at several hospitals, both private and county-owned. I've worked in office and surgery centers. I've worked with plastic surgeons, GI docs, ophthalmologists, and sedation, uh, done sedation dentistry. So I think I have a fairly good variety of experience, including also working at uh, quasi-academic institutions and in private practice. I've worked in county hospitals, suburban community areas, and I've been employed by groups and own practices. And I've also worked as an independent contractor. And I kind of mention all this because I think it gives me a variety of experience and it also kind of makes me what I like to refer to as the average Joe six-pack doc. I kind of done a bunch of different things and gotten a bunch of different experience 
Incidentally, I also just want to say, just so you know, if you don't think I'm some sort of crackpot, I am currently board certified and I have active licensure in the state of Florida and never had an incident, you know, where I've had to go to court or anything like that. So I think, I think that that's, you know, it's amazing the breadth of experience that you have. I think, you know, in physical therapy, one of the things that we see is we have all these different options of uh, types of settings that we can be in as physical therapists. And so it's not very as common, I think, to hear about physicians who, you know, kind of hop from hospital-based to community setting to private practice. And the fact that you have all these experience, I think will really, really adds a very rich, um, uh, really rich discussion to what we're going to talk about today, which the focus of today's episode is examining physician membership in the American Medical Association. So give us a little bit of background. Tell us a little bit about the AMA and then your experiences as a member, especially in your early career. Well, to be truthful, I didn't know too much about the AMA coming out of residency. I was a resident member for about a year or so, and I did it simply because it seemed like the thing to do. It's not that it was mandatory, but it just otherwise was frowned upon. I was under the impression that it sort of equated to a union. You have your, you pay your membership and you sort of have your representation and they do the lobbying for you and take on the issues that need to be taken on for your, for, for medicine. Um, I was a member for about four to five years as an attending uh, anesthesiologist and I was also a member of several other organizations as I just thought it was the thing to do. I was a member of the Florida Medical Association, Palm Beach County Medical Society, uh, the ABA, and the ASA. ABA is the American Board of Anesthesia. ASA is the American Society of Anesthesiologists. All told, this worked out to about $2,000, $2,500 in annual dues. So not completely trivial. And I was, I was always told that they these representing organizations would kind of push back against the government, that they would serve to maximize reimbursement, and that they would represent my interest. Around 2002, I had an uncle who was an orthopedic surgeon in a very big group in upstate New York, and he joined the AFL-CIO, which of course is a big union in the United States. And it started occurring to me is that if I have my uncle, who's an older physician, joining the AFL-CIO, what, what, is, what is the failure of the AMA? This is exactly the job they are supposed to be doing. And his contention always was that they were not doing this job. And it got me to start questioning what effectively the AMA was doing for me. So uh, as a member of the AMA, it's, it seems like it's relatively similar in a sense of uh, in physical therapy, we have the APTA, the American Physical Therapy Association. and you know, one of the main jobs of the APTA is to advocate on behalf of um, physical therapists. So it sounds like that's kind of the job of the AMA as well, is mostly in the advocacy realm. When and why did you decide to cancel your membership in the, in the AMA? Well, imprecisely, I would say this happened around 2006, 2007. Um, one year I did, didn't pay my dues, I think inadvertently, and there was a flood of emails. Essentially, uh, as soon as you don't pay, they're, they're very interested in you as you've left the, the, the farm, so to speak. Um, formally, they would send me, you know, emails approximately 
at a rate of approximately once per month. And they were always related to very silly and very trivial things like discounts on auto insurance or hotels in cities I didn't want to visit or rental cars and things like that. But since I had not paid, I decided not to register, figured I'd save myself 400 to $500. And interestingly, I tried to stay in the Florida Medical Association. And within about six months, they said that I was required to be in the American Medical Association in order to be a member of the Florida Medical Association. So I quickly rejoined the AMA for another year, mostly out of fear. You know, it's this idea that I wanted to be part of the medical community, wanted to be a member in good standing, quote unquote, and the dues were for the benefit of all concerned. Right around this time, the big concern, especially in Florida, and I'm not sure if it was completely a national issue, was tort reform. Medical malpractice insurance was sky high right around this time. And there was, we even went to a couple of protests in Palm Beach to protest the high uh, medical malpractice insurance rates. And I would say the AMA was noticeably non-responsive in this issue. And really got the feeling that this was because there was other competing lobbying groups, including the insurance company and uh, the ABA for the lawyers who, do, who had interest in keeping the insurance rates high. Following that year, that's when I decided I was leaving the AMA and everything else. Florida Medical Association, Palm Beach County Medical Society, and the ASA. The one I couldn't leave was the American Board of Anesthesia. That was really fearful to me to not even become remain board certified. So by the end of 2007, I was out of all of it. I figured it would be a good trial run. Let's see what happens. And remarkably, not much at all. I just sort of got the flood of emails, and that was kind of the end of it. So your board certification is not through the AMA then. It is through the um, American Board of Anesthesiologists. Is that, is that right? That is correct with one caveat. All of these, all, everybody has individual board certifying organizations, but I believe they are all under the auspices of the AMA. But okay. it is not a requirement that you be AMA in the AMA to be board certified. Okay, so kind of the AMA kind of oversees everything, but each independent society has their own board certification. Precisely. Well, I mean, so basically, you know, just to kind of summarize what you said, it sounds like, you know, you didn't feel like you were being heard by the AMA in an issue that was very important to you and affects a lot of physicians. Um, what is the, if you could just give us an average, what's the average cost per year for a physician for malpractice insurance? Uh, it certainly is specialty specific. Right now, I'm paying about $15,000 for my malpractice insurance. Um, I have not had an incident or, or any reportable cases, but it can be much higher. And places where it's much, much higher is uh, obstetrics, of course, and also neurosurgery, which probably makes a lot of, a lot of sense there. Um, they can go as much as 25, I think they're in the range of about twenty-five dollars to $35,000. Around the time I was referring to, it was as high as fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars per year. Wow, that's that's crazy. I can't even. And is that a cost that for the you know, if you work, let's say, in a hospital and you're a hospital physician, is that a cost that's covered typically by the employer? Yes, 
yes, of course, the most employers, if, if they hold the contract, this, this gets into a lot of specifics here, but let's, for example, let's say you're an anesthesia group, the group, the leader of the group holds the exclusive provider contract for the hospital. So no other anesthesia groups can come in and compete with that anesthesia group. And so they generally bear the cost of the malpractice insurance. Um, if you're an individual private practice, um, you know, if you're the head of the group, you probably in all likelihood bear the cost of all of that. But it's sort of written into that people get a reduced salary. Some of your other physicians, physician employees will have their salary reduced by a commensurate amount for this privilege. So it's kind so. of, it's within the, depending on the group that you're in, it can kind of depend on how the employer covers the cost of that high malpractice insurance. Absolutely. It is very interesting with a lot of these uh, practices, um, who bears the cost for this is variable, but the cost is always there. If you were to look at some of the, for example, if you looked at an anesthesia department, they might bear the cost for everybody in there. Um, so the employee themselves may never see the cost or think about it much and just think my malpractice is paid for. But of course, that cost is born on a decrease in salary. Um, and this is certainly true for other groups, even private practice, the head of the group may just bear that cost as part of the salary. Um, so there are some hospitals like county hospitals that will have a sovereign immunity. In other words, if you treat a large enough indigent population, um, you are absolved by law from uh, malpractice and uh, you can't be sued directly. You are acting as a fiduciary or acting as a uh, entity of the government itself, especially if you work at a county or state hospital. Okay. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, this was a very important issue at the time, which I can understand, you know, with my husband being a physician, why that would be an important issue. And, you know, it seems like over the, you know, since the 1970s, the American Medical Association has seen a considerable decline in membership. You know, being, I think it was 75% of physicians were members in the 1970s, and today it's about 20%. But there's also been a rise in that time in competing specialty associations. So you had mentioned two specialty associations that you're a member of. I know that my husband is a member of the American uh, Clinical Pathologist Society, the U.S. and Canadian um, um, Anatomic Pathologists, and I think one other, or in the National Association for Medical Examiners. So he's actually a member of the AMA in addition to three other specialty associations. So why do you think there has been a decline in AMA membership? What do you think are some of the possible reasons for this? Uh, I think a lot of people are recognizing the AMA for, for what it is. And knowing that you wanted to talk about some of this, I went back and looked at some of the numbers. And I think it's important just to flesh them out to give, you, to give people a feel for how low the membership for the AMA has dropped. In the 1960s, it was at approximately 70% of the all physicians in the country were members of the AMA. Um, it declined into the 50% in 1980. And from the statistics, I can see 113,000 total members in 1982. By 1990, it was 40%, the 2000s into the 30%. Today, roughly at, 20, at 2016, we are at 22%, 240,000, which is essentially equivalent to the membership that they had in the 1980s out of all the physicians that exist. 
So I think a lot of people have recognized the AMA for what it is. It's an archaic, slow-moving, non-responsive entity. I think a lot of people are still me members of it because of tradition and because they sort of think it is helping them because they believe it's helping them. Um, and they're also looking for ways to connect to the general public, ways to connect with other members, and it just seems like it's the most obvious one. So it's the AMA is a, is a behemoth. It's a large organization, um, and it can't be taken lightly. Um, it does wield tremendous power in the federal government. Um, and I would argue that they have this power because they're complicit with a lot of the congressional wishes and legislation and that the AMA is active in lobbying. But their mission statement is to really be, you know, to practice the art of medicine. And essentially the, the mission statement verbatim is to promote the art and science of medicine to the betterment of public health. But to a large extent, they have become a very active political organization and sort of push this, their core mission statement, to the side. One of the problems I think they have is that there is the size itself. They are so large that they can't serve all of its members well. They have a lot of subspecialties, and there's, you know, events and issues that come up that are going to put different subspecialties in conflict with each other. And the other one is, is the political nature of the AMA. Um, I think they've taken way too many political stances, which is always dangerous because by definition, when you take a political stance in this country, you're going to alienate the other half of your membership almost immediately. Um, these smaller specialty associations likely represent the views and the needs of their members much, much better. But of course, they're going to have a much smaller sphere of influence and certainly not the level of influence that the AMA has. Yeah, I think you make a couple interesting points there. I mean, um, in our last discussion, especially the physical therapy membership with the APTA, as well as my personal experience as an APTA member, one of the things that I have found to be extremely valuable about being an APTA member is the community that I'm a part of. Um, I love all of my friends within the APTA. And, you know, I definitely would not be the same physical therapist or even leader that I am now without the mentorship and support of that community. So, you know, I think it's an interesting point that you, may, that you say, you know, when people decide to be members of the AMA, it's a little bit out of tradition, but also trying to look for that community. But then if they join the membership and they don't find that community within the AMA, then they're going to go look for it elsewhere. And in you know, well, in many cases, it's probably these specialty organizations. I also think it's really interesting that you talk about how the AMA is so big and there's so such a diverse number of interests that they have to try to represent within the medical community that, you know, the challenges of trying to be able to meet the needs of the orthopedic surgeons and the family physicians and the pathologists. I mean, that's, that's very, very challenging. And, and medicine continues to get extremely specialized. Every year, I feel like, you know, people are subspecializing, sub, sub, subspecializing. So, you know, that's, I can definitely, I think that those are some really interesting points that you make. What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of being a member of a specialty organization like the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons versus you know, a generalized professional organization like the AMA. And you mentioned a couple of them, but, 
you know, what are some other ones that um, potentially there could be? Well, I, I do think that, that you bring up an important point there. So, you know, especially to relate back to the APTA, I, I think the, the needs of the physical therapist represented by one organization would likely be more consistent than the diverse ideas that are represented and the diverse specialties that are represented by the AMA. So I think the APTA could do a better job uh, of representing everyone's needs or, or generally representing everyone's needs. Um, you, you know, I, I, the, some of these specialty organizations, it's not just that they're, I like the specialty organizations, I also like smaller and more local organizations too. Something like maybe the Palm Beach County Medical Society at least would be closer to my needs. The way I may be practicing medicine in Palm Beach County may be much different than the way somebody may be practicing medicine or what their needs are in rural Kansas there. So the smaller, I think the better you, the more likely you are to represent the needs of your constituents. Um, of course, you know, the disadvantage of all that is if you're local or you're just a small specialty, you can't affect the change at a national level there. But what you also can do is create a strong community, a community where people feel, you know, support and you can get advice from somebody. Whereas I just don't think the AMA can offer that at that level, you know, especially if you have an acute need or an acute medical problem. So um, you, you still have to acknowledge the large sphere of influence that the, the AMA still seems to have, even though it may be archaic, Congress certainly does listen to them. So Yeah, I think that that's probably the most important thing that, that uh, about the AMA that I think affects all healthcare professionals because even though AMA membership has dropped significantly, it doesn't seem like their political power on Capitol Hill has dropped. It seems like they're, you know, just as powerful as ever. Tell me a little bit about why you think this is. What are your thoughts on that? Because you would think that I know that about, I think, 40 to 60 percent of membership dues go to lobbying. So if you have fewer people, if you have fewer people contributing membership dues, Obviously, you have less money for lobby power. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Well, Stephanie, I think in one word, it's inertia. They're, they're big, they're rich, they're influential. They've known how to lobby. They've been in this game for a long time. And Congress thinks they represent all of the physicians and just sort of ignores the fact that there's only 22% of the uh, physicians in America in this organization. They're good at playing the political game. And part of playing that political game is rarely pushing back against the federal government. It's almost as if they're complicit, the federal government or Congress passes the law and they go right along with it and just accept that as the, you know, as the new norm there. And the last thing I can say is you just think of the name, the American Medical Association. To the untrained, to the ill-informed, if you say American Medical Association, people are going to think, of course, that it's, they represent all medical professionals in the United States. So, you know, uh, this may be a bit of a tangent that I'm about to go off here, but, you know, I've gone back and, because there is older physicians, older than me, that had problems with the AMA in the, in the 90s and the early 80s um, that I didn't fully understand. But one of the things is, is that this is really a very heavy top-down structure. They sort of put out the edicts there, and everybody else is expected to go along with them. One of the things that, <clears throat> the, that they sort of uh, 
went against its membership early in the 60s, and probably a lot of older physicians will remember this, was the pushback against the original King-Anderson bill, which is what precipitated Medicare and Medicaid in the United States. This came about through Congress in something called the King-Anderson bill, um, and the membership pushed back, and ultimately the AMA acquiesced and uh, promoted the this uh, government health insurance. Not only did they promote it, they created something in 1966 called the CPT codes. And I'm sure that sounds familiar to a lot of physical therapists out there too. What I didn't realize is that the AMA owns all of that. They own every last bit of it. And to the uninitiated, what the CPT codes is current procedural terminology codes. So um, if, for example, a physician were to remove a gallbladder, they can't just send in a bill to an insurance company that says removed gallbladder or laparoscopic cholecystectomy would be the official term and expect to get paid. They have to get a five-digit code for this in order to bill properly. And it's essentially become mandatory for the reimbursement for any services you provide. Incidentally, it's used also for administrative and analytical purposes, but its main purpose is for billing billing purposes. The AMA holds the copyright to this. The, so think about that for a second. It's mandated by all insurance company payment systems, and they hold the complete access to the secret decoder ring that can tell you what procedure you just did. You know what procedure you did. You can say it in common English, or you can say it in medical language, but if you don't have the code to this, uh, you have trouble finding out what it is and getting reimbursed for it. You have to pay a licensing fee for the access to the code. Now, the AMA contests what I'm about to say, but it's estimated that they get between 80 and $100 million per year for the CPT codes. They allege that their money that they get for all of this is all the literature that they put out, but the rest of the literature is a bit superfluous. The thing that everybody wants is these particular codes. Everyone wants to get paid. That, that's exactly right. As long as I'm on the topic, I'd like to talk about a couple other things that kind of, that one was a historical one for why there's been some pushback against the AMA. When I was in residency in anesthesia, the AMA, and they acknowledge this, and I'll prove to you that they acknowledge this, had a saying that they would constantly, that they would almost browbeat you with. And it was that pain was the fifth vital sign. Fifth vital sign is, you know, your other four vital signs are going to be heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, and temperature. It's been my contention for a long time that the fifth vital sign is oxygen saturation, how much oxygen is in the blood. This was right around the time that Purdue Pharmacy was coming out with OxyContin. And because of what the AMA has done in pushing this, pain is the fifth vital sign, indicating that a patient should have no pain at all uh, after they've had procedures and surgeries. A lot of people have argued that they have very heavily contributed to the current opioid crisis that exists in America. Now, if you think I'm just making this up or this is just kind of conjecture on my part, the president of the AMA himself Andrew Gurman in 2016 stated, we have taken ownership of that, referring to the opioid crisis, 
and physicians have taken part in being part of the solution. And at the same time, that is exactly when they dropped the idea of pain being the fifth vital sign. But I think it's even more egregious because we have had a massive history of opioid addiction. This is not the first opioid addiction that we've had in the United States. Just to go through it briefly, this was, could have been well known. In the Civil War, soldiers were hooked on morphine so badly that it became, for about 20 years after the Civil War, it became known as the soldier's disease. Around the turn of the 20th century, Bayer created heroin. Note the name heroin, it has a hero in it. So heroin was created and booked as the non-addictive morphine. It, that caused an addiction that was so bad that Congress had to pass the Heroin Act of 1924 in order to alleviate some of the problems with heroin. Incidentally, heroin is a valid pain-killing substance, an opioid, but it's not used in the United States, although people use it very regularly in Great Britain and other countries, and they use it equivalently to morphine. It's just that it got so out of control at that time that they had to ban it in the United States. The same thing happened after World War II, where clinics promoted non-surgical treatment of soldiers injured in World War II, and this non-surgical treatment generally included oxycodone, and the abuse has been rampant ever since of that one. So when Purdue Pharmacy came out with OxyContin in 1996, they had a promotional video, and their statement was, printed, repeated often, uh, OxyContin does not have serious medical side effects. And I would argue that not only did Purdue Pharmacy know about this, but the AMA, of course, should have known about this too and should not have promoted this. And the last one is a much more modern one, and this one I think is becoming a developing one, um, is the electronic medical record, which in my humble opinion has become a disaster. It, is continued, it has continued to be endorsed by the AMA, and they pledged to continue to work with the Department of Health and Human Services in order to uh, correct and fix some of the problems that they have with the AMA. There's study after study with physicians complaining about this, nurses, other medical personnel, that this is greatly decreasing medical personnel's efficiency, and it greatly decreases patient satisfaction. I think this should come as a surprise to no one who's been a patient recently. If you walk into a hospital treated at an ER or in the hospital, somebody walks in with a computer on wheels and literally sits there and asks you questions off the computer, maybe doesn't even make eye contact with you, just asks you question after question because they're satisfying the requirements of the electronic medical record. Um, so it's, it's really decreased the ability of a physician or any medical personnel to interact well with their patients and get a real story from them, get a real history. And so if I could narrow this down to one phrase, I would say it's a tremendous time suck. It just sucks the time away. And there's been a big emphasis on trying to be more efficient. This has done just the opposite. And there's a lot of other issues that I think the AMA has not been responsive to. And I uh, just to put a few off the top of my head without going delving deeply into them, physician burnout, some of the pushback against the Affordable Care Act, dealing with subspecialty conflicts, weaponizing board certification by which I, which I mean, if somebody's not board certified, they sort of can't hold a lot of contracts or do very well at hospital environments. Um, 
and sort of this ongoing change that they make recommendations and then vacillate on those recommendations. Um, one is, is that they used to recommend just a couple years ago, vasopressin for advanced cardiac life support in place of epinephrine, and then they reverse themselves two years later. In short, what I think is happening is a lot of this centralized control is really making people issue edicts, and they're not very good at getting a sense of what's going on clinically, and a much better model is working from the, from the ground up. I think that the grass, I mean, grassroots is something that we even saw in the last election that was some, you know, that, that powered Bernie Sanders through the election there. Grassroots is something that is happening very much so, I think, on the gun control issue that's going on across the United States, which I know is something that's been probably talked about a lot in Florida, as well as here in Connecticut. Um, but I think, you know, kind of going back to some of these points that you made, when you talked about the CPT codes, I mean, as physical therapists, we use CPT codes. And we, the American Physical Therapy Association is in talks with AMA and with the, um, with uh, the Centers for Medicaid, uh, Centers for Medicaid all the time about, you know, how are we going to get our reimbursement up? What is the fee schedule going to be? And, you know, it seems like the AMA does power all those talks. And I think that it's interesting that the AMA kind of holds the copyright on that. And I think that that takes away power from the rest of us as healthcare professionals that, you know, rely on those CPT codes, like you said, to get paid. I also think, you know, the, the opioid crisis is something that has really affected, like you said, a lot of our country. And as physical therapists, one of the things that we're really passionate about is how can we help people who are suffering from chronic pain, who maybe are trying to get off opioids, or how can we even prevent them from having to deal with opioids before, uh, before they get put on opioids after they have a surgery, or even for things like low back pain. It's amazing how many times I have a patient coming in who's had low back pain for 30 years, and they've been on you know, Oxycontin for their low back pain and just trying to help them kind of figure out how to live their life without that medication now that they don't have it. And then obviously EMR is something that we deal with all the time as healthcare professionals. And, you know, I'm a millennial, so I never really had to deal with the paper written medical chart. So for me, it's maybe not as much of a, a problem because I'm just so used to it and it's so normalized in my practice. You know, I think it's interesting that that's been something that, you know, has been a hard transition for many uh, medical providers. And I know that, you know, again, it goes back to that face-to-face -face time with the patient and the fact that now the number one complaint I hear from patients as a PT is I don't get to spend enough time with my doctor. Right. So, you know, it's, you know, it's obviously the EMR is contributing to that as well. So I think that those are all like some very interesting uh, points that you bring up. Let me let me just say something because it because the, the generational thing. I'm I'm very blessed because I'm a Gen Xer. So there it seems like this ongoing battle in this country is between the millennials and the baby boomers, and the Gen Xers get to stand on the sideline and just sort of watch the fight happen rather than getting pummeled by everybody. So there's benefits to being the quote unquote the slacker generation. So, um, but I I was there when we would write just handwritten notes and there it, it you know filling out all these computer forms and asking these irrelevant questions is what why i talk about this time suck there is that 
if I did a procedure, I know what the critical thing is and I know how another professional is going to perceive this and what they need to know. So if in the future they have to read a note, I can write a very brief description of the problem and write a very brief description of what I did or the intervention that I made and it tells a coherent story. When you have to put all these other things are in the AMA about negative for Ebola or Zika virus or all these irrelevant things that seem to be hot button issues, the, the future person reading this is gonna look at that and say, why are they going on and on about the Zika virus or why are they going on and on about all these other things? Just tell me the story, the critical story of what's going on. So it, it, I, I put it this way, Moby Dick is a, is a great book. Herman Melville establishes the idea that he's hunting a whale at the beginning. Ishmael is hunting a whale. If he had to do an electronic medical record, he would have to write paragraph under paragraph describing what the whale is not. In other words, this is not a giraffe. This is not an elephant. This is not a dog. And it would get so cumbersome and tiresome to read all of that that you would just lose interest in a coherent and otherwise good story. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, one thing I love about APTA is I definitely feel like the American Physical Therapy Association really empowers, uh, my person anyway, really empowers their membership to um, be vocal about some of these issues and to really make sure that uh, they actually have the best interests of peas in mind. So with that in mind, what can professional associations like AMA do to gain membership or improve patient care? At the risk of sounding a bit flippant, I don't care what they do. I'm not truly interested in saving them. They can dissolve as an organization, and I don't think it would be too much to the detriment of most of the physicians in this country. But a more serious answer might be break up a little bit, form smaller units, form units that are more representative of each individual organization. It doesn't have to be that you break up all the way down to an individual orthopedics academy or something like that. You could break up to have a surgical representation and a more you know, internal medicine representation. And then perhaps another component of it would be some of the hospital-based physicians, which would include, like your husband, pathology, anesthesiology, ER physicians, and, and the like there. The big question, of course, if they were to do that would be the $80 million that comes from the CPT codes and who gets to keep possession of that once they did break up. Another thing, I, I think there, there's times when you are sort of required or it's obligated on an organization to take political stances, but I would do that with great caution if I was any organization. Like I said, you know, you almost immediately alienate one half of your population when you take a political stance. I think the, the AMA would be well served to go back to their mission statement, to the idea of that they are focused on the art and the practice of medicine to the betterment of the community. Sometimes you can argue that these political stances are for the betterment of the community, but a lot of times they're just alienating the people that they're supposed to be serving. And this goes to the third idea, which is to listen to your membership. Some of the more modern issues are the things I just touched upon, um, addressing physician burnout. There, you know, there's, there's a lot of physicians who are around my age, which is 50, that are, that are tired and they're burnout. And so I think a lot of guys are getting out of their careers relatively early. Um, I think that's also a problem in even young physicians as well. 
Yeah, which, I think. Which is, I think, even a bigger issue because, you know, they're the future of medicine. Uh, I agree with you. And I'm especially concerned about a lot of the millennials, uh, especially if they're burning out earlier, because they're not likely to have a option to quit or choose an alternative career. This goes to the idea of the enormous debt that's being taken on through college education and then especially through graduate education, that if you've done this through a prestigious school, you know, uh, you know, something that the Ivy Leagues, Duke or Stanford or something like that, that education may be certainly worthwhile, but it is also certainly very costly and you are on a pathway of just complete commitment there. You can't really turn around because of the amount of debt that you've created. So you may be obligated to continue working for 15 to 20 years under the other people have talked about this under the concept of being a debt slave. You, you've got a student debt of 200,000, 250,000, and you know that's going to take you 10 plus years to get out of that. How do you think that we can, how do you think we can help young clinicians find a professional association that really fits their development and their needs? And I'm specifically talking about medicine here. I think that's a, a difficult question. And I understand you're talking about medicine, but I do think the, the physician, the physical therapists association has a, is in a better position. I think the needs are more uniform. Um, this does assume, your question does assume that we want to utilize professional organizations. And I think a lot of people do, especially for the networking, for getting opinions of other people, especially on difficult cases and things like that. Um, but I do think big organizations make it very difficult to fill that need. Um, I caution you because, you know, improvements and, and techniques and improvements in medicine come from either companies or they come from, from individuals. So I, I would look to smaller organizations, more local organizations, kind of like the old fashioned, uh, you know, business meetings that people would have where people would get together at, at certain business meetings and they'd meet every Friday and people would exchange cards and talk and, and do that sort of thing. It's probably not going to happen in a brick and mortar building, so it's probably going to happen in you know more social media, just like what what you're doing right here. That people get ideas, and you know it makes it kind of the town square where people get to talk to each other. As far as the AMA, I I, I I'm going to of course advise to do what I did, just walk away. Don't don't give them your money, um, or only utilize them as you need them. Certainly, you're paying four hundred to five hundred dollars. You should get four hundred to five hundred dollars worth of value out of that organization. I think Long. you said a very key word. I'm just going to interrupt really quick. You said the word value. I think that that is an extremely important point that has been made multiple times in the the series of discussions that I've had with people about professional membership. Is what kind of value can this member this organization bring to their members, and is it worth Sometimes it's more of the intangibles. It's not even, you know, we pay $5 for a latte from Starbucks. We obviously see value in buying coffee from them. You know, how can we find value in our AMA membership or in our um, ABA membership? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and some of the things that I've done, I've kind of been looking for this for a while, but I've done it on kind of alternative routes. Now, I will acknowledge that the millennials are very good 
because they're especially good with with social media and things like that. But I've done it through a little bit more traditional routes. I'm I'm a member of the Palm Beach County uh, Palm Beach County Gator Alumni Association, my university. So I go to the to events that they have, and you know it's a social event, and there'll be a wide variety of people. Not necessarily in medicine, you know, there'll be uh, financial advisors, insurance salesmen, but it's amazing because you find a connection. Somebody will be, you know, you'll be able to give them some person that needs insurance and they're like, oh, I've had a plastic surgeon that's been looking for an anesthesiologist for a couple months. Are you interested? But it, it points out the idea of being very local in some of these organizations, that all of this happens either at the individual or local range rather than at the national range. So, and I think these are some of the better bets for trying to grow your practice. I think that that's a really great point, you know, starting local, um, especially because, you know, as humans, we strive for community, we strive for socialization, and, you know, with social media, it makes it so much easier to be able to interact with people from afar, but you don't necessarily always get that face-to-face -face time, and I think that that's still important. Well, uh, Glenn, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, with the end of our interview, we always ask a very standardized question to all of our guests, and that, uh, this is a healthcare education podcast. So that question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, what would you change and how would you change it? Well, contrary to what I've spoken about mostly here, I would actually advocate for more traditional learning. Um, I think a lot of stuff has gotten very specialized and, and very sophisticated, and it's always fun and always great to be a part of that. But I think some of the stuff that we're losing is the good old-fashioned stuff good physical exams, good histories, good labs. And to largely remove a lot of the computers and the electronic medical records and practice good listening, especially emphasize this around students uh, in taking histories and trying to implement some of the good old fashioned techniques that go back 30, 40, 50 years. There's a lot of wisdom in some of the older generations. I mean, they practice medicine too, and some of their solutions and the things they've come up with are very good and very effective and very cost effective. And they've been kind enough to write it down in textbooks. So, you know, they've got a lot of things done before there was CT scanners and MRIs and all the other things. And they did just basically by good old fashioned exams there. So these latest research trends are always fashionable and quote unquote sexy to be a part of. But there's a lot of wisdom in the older textbooks. And I try to live by an adage that I heard in medical school, be neither the first nor the last to try a new technique in medicine. Oh, I love that. I've really appreciated the perspective you brought to this podcast today, Glenn. It's been really a great conversation. Um, we'll have a lot of the uh, link or a lot of the, the links that Glenn mentioned in our show notes. So take a look at those. And um, if, you know, people want to reach out to you on social media, Glenn, because I'm sure they'll have a ton of questions for you. Uh, where can they contact you on social media or email? I'm going to, Stephanie, I'm going to go with the email. Um, I, I do say that uh, one more admonition for people out there, and it's, I may be right and I may be wrong on this one, but I stay away from social media a little bit. I know it's a great way to advertise, but I've also seen where people get misrepresented on social media. So I think I take a little bit of caution with that. But 
then again, it, it does some amazing things too. So um, if I were to, to respond to anything, I would give them my email address. I am with Lakeshore Anesthesia at Comcast.net. All one word, Lakeshore Anesthesia at Comcast.net. Perfect. And we'll have Glenn's email address in the show notes. Thank you so much, Glenn, for joining us today. And thanks to our audience for listening to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.